Welcome listeners to a new installment of the 2020 season of Praxis. If you're starting with this episode, you can go back and listen to the trailer or previous episodes for some more context on the show. If you like what you hear and want to follow the rest of the season, you should take a second now and click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. There are also links to most outlets if you go to praxisradio.com and click on Praxis. Today's show starts in Detroit, in conversation with Peter Werby, editor of Fifth Estate magazine. This wasn't our first conversation, though. At that point, I had published two stories with them and had also hosted Peter by phone on the live radio incarnation of this show on KYRS in Spokane the year before. It was our first time meeting in person, though, and we chatted in my friend's living room about the history of the Fifth Estate and putting anarchy in print for 50 years. He also kindly introduced me to Sandy, who you'll hear later in the episode, a longtime collaborator and friend who works on issues of the magazine, as well as in the collectives that put on the annual Montreal International Anarchist Theatre Festival and run the anarchist bookstore in Montreal, Lin Sumi. I would meet her a few days later as I made my way north to Montreal. If you didn't figure it out already from past episodes, I am anarchistically inclined myself, and though I've worked with many groups who aren't toward shared goals and have interviewed plenty of folks who aren't anarchists, it always feels good to share space and conversation with the ungovernable. I also appreciate the chance in this episode to romanticize the tangible, the newspaper, the bookstore, the stage, as so many of us spend more time with screens during the pandemic. Here's part of that August 4th, 2015 interview with Peter. All right, so if you could just start by uh, introducing yourself a little bit about who you are. You stumped me already. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Peter Werby, and I'm a longtime staff member of the Fifth Estate magazine. And the Fifth Estate is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, 50 years of publishing. It's one of the longest, if not the longest, publishing anarchist uh, newspaper in American history. I also professionally uh, work on the radio as a talk show host and an interviewer. So... Let's talk about, so 50 years of Fifth Estate, how many of those years have you been involved for? 49. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And how has that changed? I mean, so you publish people from all over the world. Well, originally, It's a collaborative model. Back when it began, 50 years ago, and then quickly between 1965 and 1970, uh, there was this phenomenon called the underground press which uh, essentially were these oppositional newspapers that challenged the the dominant institutions on race, on war, on the rule of the wealthy, gender discrimination, of course civil rights and the suppression of uh, the black population. In fact, a lot of times people think that uh, the Fifth Estate just jumped out of nowhere, but it was right in the middle of a tumultuous decade that had already begun Uh, the challenge of power by the civil rights movement and the black power movement. But it began as what we called a quintessential new left publication, taking on all those issues. And you have to remember that, you know, there was no internet and there was virtually nowhere to get counter information that countered the dominant narrative. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there were like a weekly newspaper, there was something called the National Guardian. And so, like my wife and I, we would see all this stuff on television and the newspaper about, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis or any number of other incidents, Vietnam, for instance, or the Civil Rights Movement. And we we couldn't wait until the National Guardian came so we could get the straight uh, scoop on things. So suddenly, we started, the Fifth Estate, uh, started providing, quote, the straight scoop. 
And this expanded to the point where there were like 500 other papers like ours publishing weekly and with a, a circulation of about 4 million a week. Wow. So this was extraordinary. And it was the voice, and, and I should say gave voice, to all these oppositional movements, protest movements, which then very quickly morphed into revolutionary movements, demanding not just this reform or that reform, but a desire for uh, both uh, simultaneously for uh, a world revolution and the age of Aquarius. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's important, at least with us, because a lot of these revolutions, of course, just turned out to be administered by these Stalinist uh, bureaucrats mm -hmm. whose idea of a revolution was to put a different uh, crowd of police in and uh, get people working even harder than they did. So it was, um, and, and they would call us hippies. But I always, uh, I don't know if I was much of a hippie, but I always loved the hippies and mm -hmm. still do. They certainly interrupted They interrupted things, things yeah. yeah. It started specifically as oppositional, did it start as explicitly anarchist? No, nowhere near it. In fact, I was influenced by a radical psychologist, Wilhelm Reich, R-E-I-C-H, and who was a disciple of Freud, but became more and more radical. And he wrote a book that uh, tremendously influenced me called The Mass Psychology of Fascism. And he looked at how did people submit to authority as they do in, in, in mass numbers, called it a, a culture of submission. And it was that they transferred uh, this fear of father figures, the politicians, from this fear they had learned from the actual father in the, uh, in the family. So I was always interested in how do we subvert that? Back in the 1950s, they called communists subversives. In other words, you were trying to subvert loyalty to the United States. And it occurred to me, that's exactly what we were all about. Not so much, I mean, to, certainly to nationalism, but also to patriotism and militarism to the United States overseas, continual overseas military adventures, its suppression of other countries, and its internal suppression of uh, minority people, of women, of gays. And so the idea that I always had is how do we... How do we sever those bonds and transfer them to a different understanding of who we are and that we're all, you know, I mean, this almost sounds corny, but we all are one people uh, and we all live on this planet together and we have common interests that are different from those that rule us. The IWW, the Wobblies, have the first part of their constitution says the, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common. And if you just change that wording a little, you know, we the ruled have really nothing in common with the rulers because they have a different agenda. They want wealth, they want power, they want privilege, they want prestige. And we want to live pretty simple lives. We do a lot of politics, but also what do we really want to do? We want to have good friends and family. We want to dance. We want to listen to music. We want to enjoy life. And we don't have grand schemes of, of power and domination and, and accumulation of wealth. And yet you have so many ordinary people that are responsive to the agenda of those that actually smash their potential for living. So why do they do this? What are the, what are the psychoanalytic structures mm -hmm. that keep them linked to the ruling class? And so I'm going a long way to answer your question. Okay. So within the Fifth Estate, yes, was it specifically anarchist? We would have everything under the sun from, from Zen 
to, well, we're talking Alan Watts to mm-hmm. uh, Alan Ginsberg, uh, mm-hmm. Tai Chi, Mao, <laughs> yeah. which the kind of, con- you know, that kind of contradicts a sense yeah. of uh, rulers. But then uh, uh, the Black Panthers, in other words, anything that took people's connection and respect away from the rulers and said, yes, we don't respect the police, we do respect the Black Panthers. We do, we don't respect Billy Graham, we do respect Alan Watts, who advocated uh, Zen to American audiences. So it was that desire to be a subversive element, to create literally a counterculture. When you say, oh yeah, the counterculture, you think, oh yeah, it's like hippies you know, spinning around in a circle to the uh, Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. But to make an authentic counterculture, a culture that's counter to the dominant one, and that's what happened in Europe uh, in working class areas. There was a counterculture. They were very frequently involved in very intense class struggle, and they had their own music, and they had their own theater, they had their own literature, mm-hmm. and th- this was uh, the model that I always saw as important for the Fifth Estate. Mm-hmm. And then it, so <clears throat> through that, and, and it sounds like it mirrored a lot of people who were involved, their personal development to the point where they became anarchists, right? And then it became explicitly... All yes. Those lines, which even just within anarchism, obviously there's a ton of, sometimes a comical amount of niche Hyphenated. politics. Yes. Hyphenated Yeah, anarchists. what's your hyphen, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, for white people, for white activists, I would say, I don't know if other people share this, historians, but I would say the 1960s really uh, existed from 1965 to 1972. The re-election of this war criminal, uh, Richard Nixon, really knocked the struts out from under people. I mean, it was that of someone of that uh, intense criminality and finality could be re-elected by the uh, American people. What had we done over the last seven years? You know, the Grateful Dead have uh, that line, what a long, strange trip it's been. It's kind of interesting because when you think about it, seven years isn't very long. And what would have been stranger would have been to be a businessman or something like that. But it seemed forever. And when you look back, when you read history, everything's condensed into important events like in that period, assassinations and marches and elections and re-elections and all that. But it really felt that intense that every single day something was happening that was uh, really uh, pretty momentous. And people were just absolutely exhausted. Uh, they ended the draft, uh, which was one of, the, you know, I, think, I think more is, of, is made of that um, than, uh, than actually was. People say, oh, the anti-war movement stopped once they ended the draft for young men. It, it, I'm sure that had an effect, but it was mostly an ethical op- opposition. It's that people saw the slaughter uh, of these people 7,000, 8,000 miles away who had done nothing to us and the majority of victims of the empire were civilians to the point where they, they think upwards of 3 million Vietnamese civilians were killed. A lot of them were still dying from Agent Orange and mm-hmm. uh, that was dropped on there. I mean, and we, we always talk about our losses and everybody knows, oh, it was, I don't even know the exact figure, you know, 58,682. And you say to an American, how many Vietnamese died? And they look at you blankly, uh, like you asked, uh, mm-hmm. how many kilometers to the moon, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they they might guess two, three hundred thousand. I've I've heard people say mm-hmm. that, and it's like asking a German, how many 
Jews, communists, Slavs, gypsies, homosexuals died in the Nazi concentration camps, and a German looking blankly and saying, "I don't know what two, three hundred thousand." So the, the, I mean, it's a, it's a, for the Americans not to know the damage that American militarism does is like this ethical black hole. Mm -hmm. I think I've wandered from your question. That's okay. No, that's that's great. And it actually kind of brings me to a different one. Let me say, I have okay. this on-air partner when I do this talk show who always... Who calms you down. <laughs> says, Peter, where are you going? Where are yeah. you going with this? Yeah. You started talking about... Oh, I went, oh yeah, right. But yeah. I'm on my own here, but, I realize. So we're talking about the 60s, right? And you said, and you pointed out those seven years. Obviously, I think... Everyone thinks that their own time and their coming of age is important because yeah. they are important during that time. But, so the last seven years since I graduated from high school, right, has been kind of kicked by the financial crisis in 2008, the housing and everything. We're looking at going on 15 years of embroilment in Afghanistan, sure. 13 in Iraq, student debt hitting a trillion dollars, all of these things, Black Lives Matter, like erupting recently, people finally talking about police violence. Part of the reason I'm traveling this summer is because I think that we're in kind of one of these moments that's not dissimilar to the 60s that you pinpoint, you know, 65 to 72. What, what do you think about that in terms of, especially as someone who's, who's getting stories from all over the place for this magazine, where, where do you think we're at? Well, it's always hard to tell, of course, but I'm hoping it's 1964 if you get my uh, mm -hmm. meaning, because there were things that happened even among white students and white activists beginning uh, in the late 1950s. And there were things like the free speech movement at Berkeley in, I think it was 1964. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were uh, uh, certainly a lot of whites that were involved in the civil rights struggles and many like black uh, activists paid with their lives. And it, it, this has all begun to, to percolate. I mean, the greed and the, the psychopathology of the people running this system is so out of control. Uh, you would think if someone said, hey, you could run this system and still maintain your dominant position, have all this money, have all this power, you could do a lot better than this, and so could I. Because you'd figure, you know, we've we got to treat people a little better than this. And so it's very possible that we could be on the edge of an, of an explosion. Because like when you got into the 80s, it, it seemed like nothing was happening. And a lot even in the 90s. And then all of a sudden you have something like Seattle in 1999, and, and there's this big explosion. Hey, one of the things I wanted to say that I didn't finish, and my on-air partner would have corrected mm -hmm. me, I said by 1972, all of the so-called underground papers of that uh, of that era, the 500 regularly appearing one. There are hundreds more that would publish one and two issues. There was GI papers in the armed services, high school papers, labor, you know, caucus papers and all that. They all peeled off and all dropped out except for the fifth estate. And it was because we came upon these anarchists and what we called ultra-left ideas that so ignited our sense of what was happening in society. I mean, the, the movement of opposition had all but collapsed, but we were all of a sudden taken with these ideas of why this was all happening. And so it was a real coincidence of time and who we met and the ideas that we came across that were pretty unique. A lot of them were the situationists, and then tying our a greater knowledge to what happened in Paris in 1968, the works of uh, Freddie Perlman, and uh, a number of other, I don't know, 
kind of obscure writers, Jacques Camat, uh, Jean Baudrillard, uh, people like that. And uh, we also just had a, a group called, we called the Eat the Rich Gang. And uh, we began, uh, we took over the Fifth Estate. The Fifth Estate had almost turned into a commercial weekly, uh, you know, where they had taken cigarette ads and X-rated movie ads. And we took it over and we said, boom, but no more ads, no more salaries. We're going to operate this collectively. And uh, we're going to come out uh, monthly instead of weekly. And uh, I don't, it, uh, it's worked out. We're here 50, 50 years later. Yeah. And what, I don't know, what, what do you pe want people to know or to think about, about uh, Fifth Estate or about anarchism in general? Well, anarchism contain, contains a vision that's diametrically opposite to how we live in this society. And it's about balance. And it, I've been influenced uh, some, because I've been taking Tai Chi for years, about harmony and the Tao Te Ching, which is this uh, text that talks about the, uh, the idea of natural harmony. And when man enters the world with intention, uh, I use the gender on purpose, it's mm -hmm. uh, that with these great intentions, everything gets screwed up. And there is a, a natural harmony that always existed between people till, till men got these great schemes of, of gods and rulers and wealth and uh, domination and, and, uh, and conquest and all of that. And anarchism negates that. Anarchism says we're all family and that we ought to relate to one another. Well, not, not the authoritarian family, mm -hmm. but where everyone has a, everyone, everyone holds hands. And if we actually could uh, diagram uh, pre-state societies and how now I think anarchists would like to be is that everyone would be holding hands, everything, the natural world, everything in the natural world, the so-called inanimate objects, trees and stones and rivers and what have you. And that would be a harmony. Whether it's possible, uh, given the damage that capitalism and the state has done, I'm sometimes discouraged about. But anarchism is also a personal philosophy, is how does one navigate in the world? Even though one may be a privileged person like myself, a white middle-class American, it's hard for me, impossible for me to live while other people are suffering, or whether, while nature is uh, suffering. So that impels me to act in terms of a vision where we all hold hands. It's hmm. a really good description. Yeah. Yeah. And how can people find, uh, find the magazine? They can go to fifthestate.org, fifthestate.org. And if they want to hear my radio program, you can do that via the internet. And you could go to Peter Werbe, W-E-R-B-E.com. You went into full radio mode right there. W-E-R-B-E. W-E-R-B-E. Yeah, you got the cadence. Yes. Great. Well, thanks for talking to me. It's been great to meet you in person. Wonderful. Same here. Yeah. We should say you've written for the Fifth Estate as well. I met up with Sandy a few days later at her home in Montreal. Toward the end of the show, you'll hear, in a sense, her impressive bookshelf. Here's that interview from August 7th, 2015. So if you just want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about uh, what projects you're working on. Okay, my name is Sandy, and my main projects are the Montreal International Anarchist Theater Festival and the anarchist book store here in Montreal, which is called uh, L'Ensoumise. And how did you get involved in both of those? 
started with a theater festival. There were two of us who started talking about the fact that in Montreal there is really a lot of activism, a lot of anarchist activism, but the importance of creativity historically in anarchy and anarchism is not uh, emphasized enough, uh, whereas, let's say, in Europe and with Italian or Spanish immigrants, there's always theater, you know, you know, even in the States and Canada, and anarchism isn't only on the street, and creativity is, you know, go, coincides with the idea of each individual's empowerment. So that kind of started the talking, and we decided to put on a theater festival, which is the only one in the world. Wow. Yeah, for uh, the anarchist theater troops participate in many activities, book fairs or uh, gatherings, but we are the only, as far as we know, we are the only anarchist theater festival, the only theater festival devoted to anarchist theater. Nice. And is does anarchist theater refer to themes or process or both? It certainly themes and process is not enough. In other words, collectively putting on a play about not paying a war tax but paying other taxes would not be in it. Okay. Let's say. Okay. Okay. Or how the government should legislate uh, against air pollution, even if it's done collectively in all levels, okay. would not be in it. Okay. Because it doesn't go along, you know, we're not, anarchists don't ask the government to do anything, basically. Yes, exactly. So, um... Have you have you been involved in theater? Or have you no, been in it or you no, I was never involved on the stage. Yeah. But you know, I really like theater. I like dance, I like modern dance. So I'm just you know in the in the organizing part. Cool, it's really important. And not in the even the technical things. I don't do anything. The night of, I take tickets, okay. where other people nice. are you know uh, doing the lights, lights and the sound yeah. and get you know and arranging the stage. Yeah. So then, where does the where does the bookstore fit in to all of the? Well, the bookstore. Well, it's a separate project. Yeah. It's a huge. You know, I mean, we have a lot of stock in English and French, some Spanish, a trickling of German, Italian, uh, Portuguese, uh, new and used books. It's probably one of the mo It's one of the most anarchist bookstores, complete that I've seen. You know, with classics and new things, mm -hmm. and especially new and used. But I mean, uh, the main stock is anarchist. And there's other sections that we consider pertinent. Some books on natives. Actually, the bookstore is divided up on the shelves by subject, not by new or used. We so you have a, we have an, um, let's say a classical anarchist section, or we have a the history of anarchy, but we have a history section. It's more like separating the anarchists and that. So mm -hmm. we have feminists, but we also have anarchist feminism oh, okay. section or anarchist literature and a literature section. Okay. So to emphasize, you know, that, that there is a difference. Mm -hmm. Even though many, let's say many, um, there have been Marxist feminists who have inspired, you know, anarcho-feminists, let's say, you know, or certain other, you know, people who are not necessarily really anarchists who have, you know, inspired anarchists. So we do have them. Okay. Yeah, and we have so a section not... on the Spanish, you know, on the war and the revolution in Spain, let's say. A green anarchy section and an ecology section. That's an interesting approach. Because, yeah, it's by subject. Because otherwise, we have English, French, new, and used in both. It would just be a mess to have many, like, you know, so many mini sections. Yeah. So it's by subject, and anarchists and non-anarchists separate. Yeah. So you talked about there being a strong kind of anarchist community here. Or Yeah, I say communities with an S. Communities, yes. yes. A strong presence, mm -hmm. I guess. Much. Of, a very strong presence. 
what do you think that can be attributed to historically? I mean, is it a long-term? I'm assuming um, many of these communities are long-term. You know, I don't think it's, uh, I don't know. There were, there's a book actually, but written in French about traces of anarchism periodically, mostly brought in by immigrants. I can't say why in Montreal since the 90s or the 80s, there is a lot of anarchist activity and a lot of groups. But I, I'm not sure why that would be, but mm. it, it kind of just is. And then it attracts other people, so it gets bigger, then it attracts other people, and it gets bigger. Mm. Yeah. And how long have you been an anarchist? Mm. Hard to say. Uh, quite, a, quite a long time, actually. Well, you know, in French, there's actually a word that was taken away from the left in English. It was a libertaire, which, you know, libertarians, and now it's like the mm. right wing have taken that. But there's a separate word for a libertarian in French. So I actually like anarchy better than anarchism or anarchist or being a libertaire rather, you know, which was the libertarian mm-hmm. before. But I'm also comfortable. You know, if someone asks me, are you an anarchist? I'll say yes. I'm not going to say no. I mean, you know, start okay. splitting hairs, right? Yeah. But it's kind of um, uh, an interesting anarchist thinker who, uh, contemporary, but who's not alive anymore, Freddie Perlman, wrote in the anarchist newspaper, The Fifth Estate, an article and. Actually, he was quoted, I'm sorry, David Watson wrote the article and, and Freddie was uh, quoted as saying, all isms were wasms, and the only ist that I am is a cellist. Nice. So, yeah, so very nice. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's enough. Um, I think about that a lot with all the hyphens. I talked a bit with Peter about all the hyphens. I don't know, they're, they're useful but not for like the general audience, I think. Well, but we know, uh, yeah, but there we have tendencies. So at the bookstore, we try to reflect all the tendencies. That's why we do have an anarchist feminist or a uh, you know, green anarchy section, mm-hmm. let's say, you know, because those tendencies are pretty active in Montreal. Yeah. But I, I just consider myself an anarchist, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So having been involved on some level politically for quite a long time, quite a long time yeah, without, um, you know, pinpointing that, what do you think of of what's going on now. So the reason I'm traveling this summer is I think that a lot of things are coming to a head at the same time and that we're kind of moving toward some kind of precipice. Obviously we're moving toward an ecological one, Mm -hmm. whether we want to or not. Uh, But I think socially a lot of things in the U.S. and it seems in Canada too, in the brief time I've been here, are kind of the pots getting stirred. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your reaction to that? What do you... Um, Sometimes I'm really optimistic and sometimes I'm afraid. You know, when there's when things go badly, very often people want like the strong man, you know, and they want order and people are afraid and they want somebody or a group like the military to take over and, <clears throat> and make sure things are calm and that, you know. Also what makes me afraid is that when the um, lower middle class gets threatened with poverty or proletarianization, it, they tend to swing to the right. Mm-hmm. And want that authoritarian, you know, system to come into place to save them, so that they can be. I'm talking about in North America, middle class. Mm-hmm. It's not like you know because the idea of being a worker or a proletarian. No one is a worker or proletarian in, mm-hmm. in North America. People are all middle class or striving for middle class. You know, so there isn't that kind of identity there, mm-hmm. and that certain strata of the lower middle class can sometimes become very much afraid and then become pretty right wing. Mm-hmm. So that works for me. Yeah. 
But there's still, you like, I'm also involved in the 50 State you know, Anarchist newspaper, and the paper has more and more new subscribers, you know, so, you know, so that makes, that's really interesting. You know, there's more of an interest, there's an interest in, you know, anarchism itself, you know, mm -hmm. that. So that's pretty encouraging. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that that's, so you were born in the U.S.? I was born in the U.S., yeah. Um, you've traveled around and lived in Canada for? More years than I lived in the U.S., actually. Okay. Do you think, so just now in the U.S., just really since like Occupy Wall Street the last few years, mm -hmm. we're beginning to lift the very edge of kind of like the taboo of talking about capitalism other than as the only possible option mm -hmm. for arranging life. Do you think that that's different between the U.S. and Canada? No, I, but I, mean, I think you're optimistic. I wonder how many people will really think of um, capitalism. First of all, I even wonder how many people really understand that they live under capitalism and what that means. That's my first question. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a difference in... I mean, I think it's more a difference of cities and rural. There was Occupy Toronto, but there was Occupy Montreal, there was Occupy Vancouver. But they're probably not Occupy like, small towns. Mm -hmm. okay. You know, there was a huge student strike here, you know, in 2012. It did spread to some of the smaller areas, but not, not to all of them. I think there's really a cleavage between, the, between cities and the countryside, unless they're intentional communities. Mm. Yeah, more than, let's say, you know, U.S. compared to Canada. There might be a cleavage, I think, between North America and Europe, let's say, or North and Asia, where, you know, where people do raise their voice and they do talk about politics at the table and they do debate, you know, mm -hmm. rather than thinking that's impolite to do so. Yeah. Where I was always taught that you shouldn't discuss politics and religion at the table. Oh, yeah. Me too. So. But, but I'm finding the more that I do, the more people want to. Mm -hmm, for and the sure. more they're very excited to yes, have that sure. kind of conversation, especially outside of an online forum. Yes. Which, which is often yeah. the worst place to have a conversation. I would like think that. so. Yeah. yeah. I would think so. Yeah. And I think the face-to-face -face is always better. Mm -hmm. yeah. So theater is kind of like that, too. Yes, theater is face-to-face. Um, -face and um, more. you can't, you know, once you make a mistake, it's not like a movie where you just, you know, can shoot it again. Even though half the time the audience doesn't know that a mistake mm -hmm. has been made, but yeah. still the presence is it's not the same. No, I mean there's a live person out there in front of you or people, you know, which changes everything. And we're not a um, a talent show for anarchists. We do judge the quality. It's not enough for people to be anarchists to come, you know. And this might sound elitist, but um, what our goal is also to have well-known, let's say, bread and puppet. We have the Living Theater, the Balance, other French troops from Belgium. I'm not going to name them. But also have good troops that are for people who have, let's say, once been on stage or even never been on stage. And uh, so it's kind of have to find that balance, you know, and lo local and international. Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, and that's the balance we strive for. So when I say it's not a talent show for anarchists, it isn't only, you know, Oh, I wrote a play. Is it, you know, we've sometimes received plays that are so obvious that it's like you know, people write a short story and they want to have anarchist content, and there's no nice writing, you know, mm -hmm. no beautiful writing. It's just you know, I have to have a lesbian and I have to have um, you know, a mean capitalist kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes we get theater that's almost like that too. Okay. It's not there's you don't you don't feel the creativity, you don't feel the spark. You say, oh, here is the message. The message is that capitalism is not good. That's not what we want. Okay. And I mean, the Brighton Puppet is, you know, so elaborate and, uh, with their hu huge puppets. The Living Theater was absolutely, is absolutely extraordinary, you know, radical, uh, experimental theater. People we've had from France and Europe as well. The Philippines we've had as well. I mean, it's all been quite interesting. 
But it's, it's quality theater, even if people are amateurs. It, there's a difference between mm -hmm. amateur and quality theater. So how, looping back around to a previous thing, because that's what I tend to do, how has your political like involvement or outlook changed over the years? Which is kind of a big question. Well, you know, when I was really young, it was the anti-war movement, which was a movement. It wasn't, it didn't have like, it wasn't anarchist or not. In fact, because organizing in it was slighter, you know, kind of, or, you know, people proclaiming. It was against the war, and it was broad. So then I think I became more focused as time went along and to really have an analysis that was, you know, anti-capitalistic, you know, anti-patriarchal, obviously. And when I was growing up, the anti-racism, I grew up in Detroit, so, I mean, anti-racism clicks in after a while, or not, but it did with me. You know, I was amazed in junior high school that the black kids in my classes, their fathers made more money than my father did. I couldn't believe it. So that's an example of institutional racism. Cause mm -hmm. No one in my house ever told me that black people were poor, always. Mm -hmm. It was just institutional racism. Just I couldn't even believe it. They were black doctors, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, or, and black lawyers. What? You know? I mean, my father was a salesman. You know, so I, what? You know? So, I mean, you, you know, those kind of things click in. But then it was, you know, became more and more focused and more and more with an anarchist, uh, let's say, approach. And what's next for you, do you think? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about it. Yeah. Politically, I don't know. Yeah. None of us really knew what would be next. That uncertainty is what Ursula Le Guin says makes life possible. When I talked to Sandy again on August 26, 2020, I started off asking her about the obvious. How had the COVID-19 pandemic affected her projects? But the bookstore is open. There are people doing shifts, but, and only three other people can be, like three clients can be in the bookstore at a time. Um, and the theater festival was canceled for last May which is not a surprise. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to do is initiate, a not a festival, but a situation where people can send us at any time either plays or um, performances, radio plays even, you know, that people can just kind of sit and listen to on a continuing basis until we see what is going to happen. We're not going to plan another festival for next May until we see how what happens with the COVID. Yeah, and... You know, when we talked before, we talked a little bit, I think mostly regarding the bookstore, around the importance of kind of, and we talked about it with theater, actually, now that I'm thinking of it, uh, kind of the importance of that tangible, uh, intimate experience, I guess, of a bookstore, of theater in person. I guess yeah, just it, maybe from yeah. a political perspective or any other, just aesthetically, uh, how's that been for you and for that community? Well, I still think it's really important that, you know, anarchy is not only on the streets. I mean, creativity was always a part of anarchy. I mean, some of these people would work, like, in factories for, like, eight or nine hours a day. It was mostly the men, and, and obviously they could do this, you know, because the, the women were working at home. That's the basis of um, kind of capitalism now, right, to have the women. It was basic, Until the women had to go into the factories, they were at home, so the men could do that. But they would, in the weekends, you know, everybody would put on plays and have cultural festivals. Any, you know, anyway, it was never separated. Like, some of it was for propaganda, and, and, a lot, and most of it was just for the pleasure of doing so. Culture was never, like, separated you know, from their lives. And people were, 
you know, working class people, if they weren't literate, they had other people reading, you know, anarchist texts and plays and what we call the classical anarchist texts to them, like, you know, Bakunin and Kropotkin and other people of their, you know, uh, and, and read anarchist newspapers out loud to them. So it was never really separate. And history was also important. And so that's from the theater festival. And also at the bookstore, I mean, we, you know, we have all those classical authors and Emma Goldman, you know, an anarchist feminist. But we also have like, you know, poetry. And there are some writers that many people would be surprised that are anarchists. Let's say like uh, Ursula Le Guin, mm-hmm. March Percy. And, oh, you know, we have their work, and we have a lot of, uh, you know, Blansky's in the news now. We have his his creative stuff and a lot of graphic novels. So culture and theory and history um, come together at the bookstore as well. I guess this is still on the bookstore, but in the five years since we talked, I think that just recently, but kind of on a steady trajectory since then, you know, these big companies that control all of the digital sphere and the ways that people are largely sharing information, you know, Facebook, specifically Facebook, but Google, all the rest are really being called into question. Does that, do you think that's going to affect the worlds of, of print-based people or I don't know, the, the power grab of the tech companies during COVID? You know, I don't, I don't know. You know, I mean, there was always a prediction that, print would die, right, and the Internet was going to take over. And yet there are more and more, you know, small small anarchist presses. There are uh, certainly bookstores. They open and close. We have a privileged position because we pay a very low contribution to the project that owns the building where we're in. But, I mean, there are info shops. But I don't, you know, there's always this prediction that print will die. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't seem to. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think the the COVID, you may life difficult for all publishers for a while, you know, um, and their publishers are cautious, whether they're, you know, anarchist publishers, radical publishers, or very straight publishers, because they just want to see what happens if bookstores close for three months, then, you know, obviously there are no sales, mm-hmm. uh, or there are sales by, you know, by internet, you know, by like, you know, Amazon, etc. Mm-hmm. But I don't think electronic, maybe people are looking for information, quick information electronically, like, you know, and there are anarchist sites also, like it's going down. But I don't think that's replaced um, books. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned it's going down, and I think they're one of the outlets that have been targeted, you know, by Facebook mm-hmm. just in the past right. few weeks here and uh, and had their groups taken down kind of in the name of balance. And that might go unnoticed by a lot of people, but I think that books have kind of a heftier, weightier, older symbolic value that a Facebook group doesn't, where if, you know, the government comes yeah. and shuts down your bookstore. Yeah, they they won't. I mean, they, you know, I mean, they won't here, and they won't, mm-hmm. I doubt, you know, in the States, because, yeah. you know, the, the whole thing of, you know, quote-unquote freedom of speech, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, and it's, I mean, when you look at some, who are, is publishing, I mean, besides, you know, the, you know like AK Press or PM Press, I mean, we get anarchist books from, like, you know, University of Toronto, University of Minnesota, Rutgers. I mean, there are all kinds of academic presses that are publishing anarchist books, either because the authors are academics or because they think they'll sell. I mean, they're not obviously doing this for the cause, Mm -hmm. but they they think they'll sell. And books on race, you know, and books on, um, you know, Native people. 
and genocide. I mean, most a lot of the universities in the in the in the West, you know, or in the center of of the continent, um, publish books on you know genocide of Native people. You know, books in the universities in the South, you know, publish books about Jim Crow. I mean, uh, and not only universities. If it's going to sell, like carceral capitalism, or geez, I can't remember the one about you know how many black people were in prison. I mean, it's quite amazing that these books are coming out of standard, you know, publishing, Random House, let's say, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Orwell and Camus are always published by, let's say, Penguin. They never stopped just because of what was the content, because they thought they could make money on it. And I think they'll continue, at least for a while. I mean, there would have to be a, a big shift to the right in the States, you know, I mean, a huge shift for them to think that it was too dangerous for them to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think they have been... I hate to say smart in the way that they, they've gone just far enough with all of those things. Right. <laughs> you know. And it also proves that, you know, the United States and Canada, you know, that how liberal democracy works because you can publish these books that criticize, demo- you know, liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's but Herbert Marcuse, uh, you know, talked about that a long time ago, that as long as you're not a danger to the system, you, you know, you can say or do whatever you want, and then when you become a danger, you get killed like the Black Panthers. When I caught up with Peter again by phone on August 20th, 2020, we also talked about our reliance on tech and its dual roles regarding political repression. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I start talking like this and it doesn't make, doesn't make for a very happy conversation. But, we, you know, fine. we can be dead-ending ourselves in a manner that could wind up not be very pretty. You know, empires in collapse don't end well. No. Yeah, there's a lot of flailing going around. Right now, that's how I see a lot of it, you know. Um, well, let me just say, uh, so it doesn't sound totally hopeless. I mean, so it's really imperative, as I decided, I, although I decide this about once a week, I'm just not going to do anything on Facebook anymore. Just talk about spending our time on the Internet, which seems so real, you know, the what we're posting and, you know, the replies and the comments we're making and the arguments we're putting down, it all seems so real. And it's not because if if everything collapsed tomorrow, food, police, fire, I mean, what would we do? I mean, people used to live without, you know, international food uh, distribution and without formal police and didn't have fire departments and what have you. Well, it would really behoove all of us uh, to wherever we are to begin organizing in a manner uh, around perhaps just day-to-day things that don't, you know, that, that aren't at a crisis point, uh, to be able to have the structures that if things really went bad, as they have at other times in, you know, other countries, that, uh, you know, we wouldn't be just uh, by ourselves and have, you know, no recourse, uh, you know, whatsoever. Yeah, that actually brings up something I wanted to ask you around the magazine and around uh, print, print publishing and... Um, I mean, actually, just this morning, I'm really glad I listened to this this morning. I heard Facebook has done a big crackdown. They removed like 800 QAnon groups, um, which, you know, that's a whole rabbit hole. We don't need to go down. But they also, for the sake, what appears to be for the sake of quote unquote balance, removed groups associated with Crime Think and it's going down and a couple other right. either explicitly anarchist or far left publications because they have this idea that like, oh, you know, both sides, this both sides rhetoric that's been rattling around the last 
forever, but especially the last decade or so. So what do you, what do you think about, I mean, that seems to enhance your point around kind of our reliance on, on the internet and around the digital sphere. Does that influence your decision as a collective at Fifth Estate to remain focused on print? And what do you think about the like potentials of like a digital anarchism kind of alongside that in-person organizing you're talking about? Well, you know, it's hard. I mean, certainly um, now, uh, you know, in demonstration, you know, we, we depend on our cell phones a lot. I mean, even sometimes to avoid the cops, you know, certainly text messages, the way we can meet up with our affinity groups at big demonstrations, the people alert, you know, cops are kettling people, you know, at the corner of Broadway and 41st, uh, you know, street, to, you know, make sure you don't go there, on and on. So it's not like without, you know, it's not like it has no value whatsoever. I started with print 54 years ago. You know, I wasn't one of the founders. And uh, so come from one generation, and you're already, I don't know, what the hell am I, two generations up from it? You want to be real careful about affirming something whose day maybe has passed. There's something, you know, this is, I know, non-Buddhist. You're supposed to go for the impermanence of things. But at our 50th anniversary celebration at this local hip museum, Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit, we, we said, are there any... 23-year-olds here, and a number of people raised their hand, and we said, good, we want you to be here for the 100th anniversary. And there is there is a permanence which which has to do with Lincoln, so you're not, but we did that. In the 1960s, people did not, there wasn't much continuity between the 1930s and the radicalism there. In fact, when we found out that in the 1960s, when suddenly people that were involved, I don't remember any anarchists, mostly communists and socialists, we were shocked. You know, you're 60 and still alive. You know, we were, you know, we were absolutely floored that these people exist. Of course, then we met all these in the 1980s. We met all these anarchists in their 80s that were born like 1898, 1900. You know, they were just thrilled that we were still putting out a print publication. But I suspect in the age of Facebook and TikTok, a magazine, you know, I could imagine like a 20-year-old thing, what are you reading, the ARP uh, magazine, you know? It, it, you know, it does seem to some extent, magazines everywhere all the time, so it's not like it's, uh, you know, a total dinosaur. But there is something to sitting down somewhere, rather than looking at your subway or sitting, you know, like I am where I am now, sitting out in my backyard, to sitting and reading something and Gee, maybe dozing off, or maybe do that when you're older. I don't know. I think I did that all my life. Yeah. You also, you you go down and you go. Wait a minute. I thought the person said it up here that you did blah blah blah, and then you just kind of go back one page and you reread and you go. Oh. I mean, yeah, I know you can scroll up again, but no, who does that? No. And, you know, <laughs> and also, you tend to read less. I mean, that guy, we asked a guy one time for a 1,200-word essay, and he turned in 8,000. And, and we said, what are you doing? You know, and he said, oh, no, no never mind. I'll publish it uh, online. Well, I wonder how many people does he think read his 8,000-word essay on their phone? Probably pretty limited, right? Maybe, maybe his mom. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, the other thing is, here's what I like about print publication. This is an odd aspect of it. They're expensive. You go, wait a minute. Why would you want it? It's expensive. It demands a community to support it. 
you can put up a you know a news site or you know post on Facebook or something like that. Usually, I mean, you don't have a lot of idea of how many people are checking it out. But I mean, we we people don't subscribe and people don't donate. There's no fifth estate because it costs us about three thousand dollars to print an issue. It costs us another fifteen hundred dollars to mail it. So people got to come up with all this money, and it's I know a lot of radical publications self fund. I mean, the people involved kick in their own money. And it's not that I'm not generous or anything, but if it got down to the point where so few people were interested in it, I'd, I had to pay for it myself. It would be just like this ego you know, project. So we, we get an idea that people want it to be there. And the other thing is, even among radicals, even among anti-capitalists, that if you pay $15 a year or $4 for a, uh, a single copy, you're going to read it because you bought it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you wanted it, you know, and you're going to say, well, wait a minute, I paid four bucks for this. I better read it. Well, I mean, if you don't like it, you don't resubscribe or you don't, you know, you don't buy another issue. And I would say, and this is true with every publication, you know, maybe a third of the people don't renew their subscription. And I have no idea why, you know. I mean, why did they want to do it in the first place? Why did they decide not to? But, you know, it's always, I mean, where our circulation is actually growing, it's not growing by leaps and bounds, but it gets bigger with each issue to the point where it's actually beginning to put some pressure on how much time, for instance, my partner Marilyn and I spend doing it. You know, you start feeling, because, you know, we, we sell posters and T-shirts and books and CDs, and so I'm beginning to feel like a fulfillment clerk. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, I used to say, oh, great, you know, here, we got Orders for two T-shirts that last week. Oh, hey, we just got orders for seven T-shirts today. Well, you know, it, it takes you know some time, and I'm glad people are wearing the T-shirts. And it doesn't occur to me to to not sell them because you know I have to spend the time. But yeah, so I I, I think the permanence of it is good. You know, you ever you ever seen books by you know you know radicals with the letters they've exchanged and all that? Mm-hmm. That's never going to happen again. It was just all in in, in emails that uh, mm-hmm. were deleted. Yeah. So we're not going to have any record of these discussions or debates or what have you. Mm-hmm. Unless perhaps everyone takes this mandate to buy stamps very seriously, and we create a at least month long archive of of physical correspondence among people in my generation. But we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But can you imagine writing a letter? I, mean, I, I just did. I do it all the time. But Is I'm it handwritten? kind of a Luddite, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I get it from our our comrade and dear friend, Marius Mason, who's in prison. So he writes handwritten letters all the time. But, uh, I mean, my, my handwriting now probably can only be read by one person, me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, because I, the only thing I write is I what scribble notes, mm-hmm. and sometimes I look at them in Canada. So, what the yeah. hell does this mean? Yeah, it's a. I I like that idea of permanence, though, and I wonder, um, that kind of leads into a more personal, but it's all tied together version of that. I think a lot of new people are are entering, like you said, and you were talking about you know the, the demonstration dwindling to fifteen people. How how do you personally sustain doing this kind of work over time? And do you think that there are any parallels to that, like with the magazine work, like a sense of momentum and a sense of of permanence and, and building on the history, even like you said, you know, meeting those anarchists from the turn of the 20th century 
during the 60s and 80s? Well, in terms of, I suppose, just of models of aging, for instance, because I just had my 80th birthday. Which is, I mean, I keep thinking there's got to be some mistake. It's probably, you know, probably they mistook it by 20 years or something, but whatever. You can't really fool it. But when I met these people, these men and women, they were between 80 and and 100. And I remember we were at a what they call a cena, C-N-A, uh, C-E-N-A. Uh, they, they were Italians. And uh, they would have these dinners where they would, a lot of them, they talk like the Godfather. I mean, I thought, I thought this was a joke. You know, they would say, we're raising money for the uh, for the publications and the political victims. And I go, okay, good. And and so they were joined together by solidarity, by vision, by the activity they had taken over that began. And uh, some some of them, you know, were opposing the First World War. <laughs> Imagine that. And, you know, their radical activities had spanned 75 years, and and they were united as a community. They were happy. They were, you know, they were friends. I remember it was one guy who was, they were bringing, they weren't supposed to, but they were bringing wine into this park in Florida where they were. So they were drinking. They were drinking while they were getting drunk. And one of them, I think it was in the late 80s, slapped this uh, older woman on the butt. And she looked at him furiously and said, Tilio, you were a sexist pig 60 years ago, and you're a sexist pig today, you know. And they all roared, including including the woman that did it. You know, it might, I don't think you could get away with it at all now, and, and you shouldn't. But, you know, it, was, it wasn't people... Uh, sitting in an assisted living home looking at television or looking at the floor. These are people that were still joyous about life, that had a, a vision and ethics grounded in a in a different world, in a world they wanted. Not that they weren't being realistic. And mostly, except for things like I described, <laughs> were, you know, acted on them in the, their daily life. So it was a model of uh, of aging. Because usually we think of aging as, uh, you know, a, a diminution of our, our powers, our, you know, intellectual powers, our physical powers. And, you know, you can't hold everything off forever. I understand that. But uh, these people sure gave it a, a hell of a go. And, you know, that's what I'd like to see in our group as well. Well, and it's so valuable, like, just as someone who is 50 years behind you to have those people around and still active and not not perpetuating this myth that, you know, when you turn 40 or however old you're supposed to turn and just become a Republican, if you're a white person right. in America, you know, to have those models so we can kind of see ourselves as part of a through line that's not taking it, you know? Yeah. And I guess on that note, who do you think, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter protests since George Floyd's murder at the beginning of our talk. But who do you think, you know, since anarchism is kind of all about articulating that other world that we want to live in, who do you think is doing that most effectively right now? Like, what's what do you find inspirational right now? Well, I mean, it's, it's inspirational. I mean, I always find any rebellion uh, inspirational, uh, even little acts. Someone put on our local mailbox do not remove, you know, tape the sign on there. And it made me chuckle. I mean, certainly, though, a rebellion of this magnitude would 
tens of millions of people involved, and you know, racism being the curse of this country because that's what it was founded on. I mean, you can spin everything a hundred different ways and talk about the good parts of the Constitution and you know what it set in motion, but this society, this country at its root, was you know Europeans going beyond their boundaries because they had destroyed this one continent. They exported this toxic culture. They had the opportunity upon meeting a superior culture than the people that lived here, the native people, and rejected it and instead you know, committed genocide, brought slavery here. Well, it's pretty hard to undo the genocide. And it's really difficult to undo the, the, the racism that is fundamental to this society and culture. And the idea that people are in open revolt against it, that's saying that is no longer... Culture, at least culturally acceptable, you know, is such a good beginning. How we, quote, reform the police, close quote, is way beyond me. I mean, what can be done? I mean, I assume these guys, you would think they would be a little more circumspect before they start shooting somebody or beating somebody or lying. The whole thing, you could get me going for a whole half hour on cops lying mm-hmm. to imprison people. But in terms of brutality, they still, you know, I mean, since uh, George Floyd, I mean, I forgot how many more people have been killed by cops under uh, shaky circumstances and what have you, and how many people just get, get knocked around by cops on a day-to-day basis every time they get stopped. So in a sense, give me the question again. You said, what inspires me? Was mm-hmm. that it? Yeah. And and but, who well, are, there, what are there groups me, or individuals but, specifically, well, too? Yeah, um, yeah, individuals. You know, the, the people, you know, I should know more of the names of people in Black Lives Matter, some of the people that have popped up as spokespeople that, you know, suddenly just ordinary people become just gifted orators because they're they're speaking with the zeitgeist. The whole spirit of the times just flows out of their mouths. And, and so much of it contains what, you know, I don't mean to go totally ideological, but has, but rather than that either going into the Democratic Party or saying we should join some little communist or socialist sect, they're operating pretty much on anarchist principles. That is collective decision-making, the, uh, why did I always forget what you call it? You know, when people repeat, people's bullhorn, is that what it is? Is that what it's called? Yeah. People's uh, mic. That kind of, people's mic, right, right. You know, those kind of desire to not have you know, leaders in the sense that people that are going to make decisions for us, but that, you know, that ultimately, if we have a vision, it's everybody making decisions equally. So there's been, you know, like kids involved in this, a lot of young women, young women of color have just, you know, risen and seems that every, and I just always go to demonstration, I'm just, as I should be, I suppose, uh, you know, just a, a participant. And it seems that people that are most articulate, most have come to the leadership as opposed to being leaders, but have come to the leadership are, you know, are young women of color. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've come a long way from, you know, the 1960s when it was, with a few exceptions, you know, all white men who were the the big shots. And the last thing, this has potential to be like a wild, long tangent, but don't feel pressure for that. The last thing, when we talked, I've, I've been listening back to these interviews from five years ago, and, you know, obviously summer 2015 was like a big precipice, especially in retrospect, but it felt that way then. And you said when we talked, you said, I hope it's 1964 right now, meaning like right before what we think of as yeah. the 60s kind of popped off. So do you think that it was that now that we have the benefit of these five years? Well, and One of the things I'm so happy 
about saying that I probably felt I probably should have felt back then as well, way back then, five years ago, was, I don't know, the future seems so murky. I mean, it probably always was. Even when we were sure that this or that was going to happen, or that this, these actions or this upsurge or, or these urban riots or this march on Washington or you know, this local activity, this was going to presage you know, a leap forward to, and, and I'm not sure what. You know, it used to be, uh, there was a group in France, I won't even try to say it in French, but essentially it said socialism or barbarism, uh, essentially meaning that the center couldn't hold, that either that we were going to go into an idealized future uh, or an idealized society or or the worst elements that have dominated state society and capitalist society. Uh, you know, overwhelmingly since its origin. I mean, think about how many democratic societies have there been in the last 8,000 years, you know? How many free society? How many societies without slaves? How many without rulers? How many uh, without people being so horribly exploited for the benefit of a ruling class, you know? So where are we at now? I don't know. You know, maybe, you know, we'll get rid of Donald Trump and then everything will be okay again. Uh, it'll be just like it was under Barack Obama, which it's was better fine. than this, yeah. but it didn't solve any of the problems. And I could, and I won't do it if it's towards the, the, the end of things, I could construct a worst case scenario for Joe Biden's presidency. So, uh, I mean, hopefully it won't occur, but in some ways it depends upon your mood. Mm -hmm. People now, the majority of people think the cops are racist. How did that happen? You know, overnight almost. So I don't know. Remember, the, there was a slogan that's kind of old now. Oh, it probably happened around Seattle t over 20 years ago. Anything can happen. Um, anything can. Oh no, no, I'm sorry, I went the wrong one. That was the, that was the name of a book by Freddie Perlman. It was Another World Is Possible. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I feel more comfortable with Freddie Perlman's title, Anything Can Happen, than Another World Is Possible. I would say we desperately need another world. Is that going to happen? Well, we'll see. Mm -hmm. You know, they estimate there were 21 million people involved in the Black Lives Matter activities, beginning, you know, with the death of George Lloyd. I mean, it's an astounding figure. I, I don't think the 60s ever even approached that. And I was, uh, you know, this, where I live is an integrated upper working class suburb, but just, you know, like four blocks to the east of me, there's an upscale, upper middle class, about 98% white suburb. And uh, someone said, well, there's going to be a Black Lives Matter demonstration there. It was like the beginning of August. And I thought, I got to see what this is. And so 300 white people assembled in this upscale neighborhood and were marching down the streets, the residential streets that had never, ever had a demonstration ever, chanting Black Lives Matter. I mean, it, it was astounding. I, I don't know what tripped it. I mean, think about all the black people that have been murdered, the men and the women. I mean, this was particularly egregious and, you know, and brutal. But uh, the others were, so many of the others, a guy, I can't remember all the names, you know, signs say, say their names. And, but I've forgotten a number of them. The guy that was shot in the back, uh, the, you know, the, the, you know the, the child that was uh, killed by the cop in Cleveland, on and on. I mean, why didn't that do that? And who knew? that there was this reservoir of uh, ethical indignation that sprang forth uh, from white people. You know, we tend to think because 
what, two-thirds of white people vote for the Republicans, regardless who their candidate is, uh, we generally think that they either don't pay attention, don't care, or are just fine with what the, the police are doing. But this was quite astounding, I would say. I want to finish this episode back with Sandy in our more recent conversation. She finishes with a pretty big reading list. Two, actually. So if you don't have a pen, don't worry. It's listed in full in the show notes below with links to buy from non-Amazon sources. Yeah, I mean, it must yeah. be very, you know, it's very, I must be very scary in the States now, you know. I mean, just to be at the wrong place. I mean, just the number of guns, you know, handguns that they can be legally visible when you're anywhere could be scary enough, you know. Mm-hmm. And the whole backlash you know, against women, you know, here too, though, the whole mm-hmm. backlash against women. Yeah, it's all pretty scary. Yeah, yeah. It's something that's kind of curious, you know, talking just as as anarchists and anti-authoritarian people in different states, you know, different versions of a, of a similar state, really. I don't know. We're the, the worst cousin right now or something. I don't know what metaphor I'm going for. But when we talked before, we were talking about kind of like anticipating the near future. Uh, this is five years ago. And right. you said something that you felt kind of scared about then was the desire for authoritarianism and authority among threatened middle classes. Yeah, and I think, yeah, among the middle class, and I think among what's called the lower middle class, people who just are afraid to become working class. Mm-hmm. You know, people, unfortunately, people, they'll despise the people in the social class just below them rather than seeking solidarity with them, right? And lower middle class has reverted to kind of fascism or authoritarianism and racism and xenophobia a lot, feeling threatened by the working class and to become working class, right? I mean, they're just holding on to what they have, and they don't want to sink any lower. And, you know, nobody wants to be poor, but especially in North America, people didn't ever you know, identify as working class. I mean, they did. The radicals did. Mm-hmm. But most people didn't want to identify with working class or the proletariat was a word that was never used, like in Europe, because they wanted to identify with, you know, middle, be middle class and, or be wealthy. So they admired their bosses rather than, I mean, I'm generalizing. There was, was a, you know, a strong union movement and there was, you know, gompers in the 19th, early 20th century. I mean, but... You know, it, it is like social class that could be, you know, very scary. Where do most of the white nationalists in the States come from now, or in Canada as well? You know, I think they come a lot from that social class. They feel threatened by everybody, and if they're men, they feel threatened by women. And it's also, as a whole environmental crisis, I think that when people, when things get really bad, people are going to want law, order, and assurance that things are going to go well and that they'll be able to eat and that their kids will be safe. And that is a lot of the themes, you know, of the right. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they won't look for the solutions, the radical solutions. I don't think it's what is going to appeal to them or kind of long-term change or having to think about what change really means, you know, mm-hmm. and being on a neighborhood council, let's say, to get change. I think they're going to want change, you know, instituted from above because that's all they've known. Mm-hmm. Just a nice, like, comforting... Yeah, father figure, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which, ugh, yikes. But so you alluded to, you just mentioned white nationalists in Canada. And and I'm curious, you know, I've been kind of underwater trying to keep up and maintain my well-being here. I wonder if you could talk a little bit just about what, what you see like general 
political movements. And I'm especially curious about, you know, having, I live in the Pacific Northwest and that's really a hotbed of white uh-huh. nationalist organizing here in the States. But I'm, I'm curious to just to hear more about what that looks like in Canada. And I think what it looks like in Canada is more, it's like there, there are some groups, but, you know, they might have a hundred people okay, or less or 50. White nationalism and organized anti-Semitic movements didn't have a lot of appeal here, especially since before, groups like the Ku Klux Klan were also anti-Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, and it wouldn't work in French Canada, let's say, including Quebec, because, you know, the Catholic Church was so strong, and most of those people were Catholics. I think, but I might be wrong, the movement of white nationalism is stronger, more in the West, and in the, the like, province of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba are more conservative to begin with. And that's where the Conservative Party of Canada, parts of it, which are pretty right-wing, have their base. And then there are pockets of their base everywhere, and that party is a merger of the kind of more right-wing part and another conservative, they're called Red Tories, it's kind of like more progressive, quote-unquote, and the internal politics like Medicare and less progressive than things like foreign policy. Hmm. Okay, And those two parties merge, so there's always a tension between them. But the far right wing of this is more, you know, in the middle provinces, and then not in British Columbia. So there might be, again, there's a group, I I think I'm probably exaggerating to think they have 100 members here, but that doesn't mean that people aren't sympathetic or aren't just racist or anti-Muslim, let's Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. which which is a big one here, and anti-Native people Mm -hmm. is another big one here. I would think the racism toward Native people is pretty strong, you know, and toward immigrants and toward uh, you know people with dark skin who are not immigrants. I think it's pretty strong everywhere in Canada, but it isn't manifested as much in Quebec. Hmm. I think if your people who live near a Native reserve, which is a, you know, a reservation, will probably have strong a lot of people anti-Native sentiments, but I mean, and all the normal prejudice. But first of all, the whole gun culture is not the same here. Yeah. And I wonder, so there's, I know there's a lot of, even more so in Canada than in the U.S. This is totally changing tack a little bit, but um, the, a lot of the visible action and resistance around climate change is led, this is true in both countries, but I think in Canada, it's been highly visible by indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And I wonder just if about that, um, if there's specific cases people should know about if they're listening down here and they don't know. You know, a lot of it is, resistance of climate change is also related to, to the land, right? The control of the land. And, you know, there wasn't as much genocide here as there was in the States. There was what is called ethnocide. There's to try to kill the ethnic, you know, residential schools, which there were in the States as well, where children, you would say, they take the Indian out of the out of the child, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of areas in Canada that, where there were never any treaties, okay? The land was never given up. So, and in those areas, there's also a lot of battles for exactly to take back their land, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's say like the Mohawk struggles, you know, in Quebec and in Ontario, let's say, where they will say three quarters, you know, half the province, well, not half, but a good part of the province, you know, should belong to them, but they wouldn't kick people out. And in the West as well, what happened in the West probably made bigger news. But there are Native struggles everywhere. There's a Mi'kmaq in uh, New Brunswick and in, in Quebec. You know, there are other groups that are periodically, the Inu, uh, always, it's I-N-N-U, U, it's not Inuit. 
are always struggling against dam, you know, Hydro-Quebec putting dams up in, in their territory. So, I mean, there are constant struggles here with, in Canada with Native people. And has that, do you think there's been a movement among kind of left, left-ish, radical, progressive, whichever label, do you think that those movements have, have catalyzed like broader conversations about kind of like reconciling the, the violent, like the colonial history? Yeah, I think so. But I think that started even beforehand. But um, yes, uh, yeah, of course. But not only uh, progress. I mean, I think it's trickled out even to, you know, like there are, it's not acceptable anymore, let's say, for schools to have Halloween parties and dress kids up, you know, in this kind of stereotypical, you know, Native people with like, mm-hmm. you know, three feathers and, and whatever and, and a tomahawk. So I think it has kind of trickled down. I think it's trickled down to the change in the textbooks in school. I mean, Native people are just not figurants here anymore who, who tortured missionaries, which they were for a long time. Uh, but it's a slow change, and I think yes, I think the whole question of allies is you know an important topic in uh, radical communities. You know, like what do you do as you're an ally? You know, which is probably the same thing happening in the state toward you know black people too. Mm-hmm. But the question of allies, not only allies. You know, like you speak out against certain injustices because for you they you feel that they shouldn't happen, right? It isn't even necessary for the person who's the victim of the injustice. Let's say, right? I mean, am I being clear? So let's say a long time ago in Detroit or in other parts of Michigan, there was, you know, no open housing. Okay, I mean, there are just everybody knew that there were areas in Detroit where black people and Jews couldn't go buy a house. Period. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say somebody who was not black and not Jewish organized a group and did a sit-in because it basically got them sick. Okay, that whole attitude, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say as a non-Jewish, non-black person, they were against it. Okay, so it becomes. They're not doing it for somebody else. They're doing it for them, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. In some cases, are you an ally? It's hard to say. So let's say um, during the Gulf War, people are out, I mean, I mean, out in the streets here, 300,000 people. I mean, they're not doing it necessarily for the Iraqis. You know, they're doing it also because they are incensed, and they didn't want, let's say, the Canadian government to be involved in this. Okay? Mm-hmm. So how does that apply? So let's say white people are incensed about police killings, on their own basis, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily to quote unquote support black people, but so that's where it becomes touchy, you know, and difficult, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I don't know here how that's really being played out because here it, it's just less of because there's a less population. The police are horrible. They have killed, uh, you know, people who are supposedly mostly like people, homeless people, become the victims. There's a lot of racial profiling in Mon- in Montreal, Native people. People who look Arabic, let's say, in black people, a lot of it, okay? But it's still the level of intensity because the level of population is not the same as in the States. I'm not saying it's fun for a black, you know, young mm-hmm. black man here either, but and, and Canadians tend to be smug about it when they look at the States, right? But, I mean, it's only because populations are not the same, mm-hmm. I think. Well, because the same, the and, but, and, is again, and the intensity, I mean, because of the gun thing, I think... But the police have impunity here as well. Coalition Against Police Brutality has the numbers of how many people were, have been killed by the police in the last 10 years, let's say. I mean, it's not nothing, you know, at all. It's very important here, too. There's a march here, a big march, every March 15th to stop, you know, against police brutality. You know, everybody's aware of it, but it's some, for some reason it doesn't seem to have the same intensity as in the States, let's say. Well, and it's it's interesting that you bring that up because like it kind of goes back to just like a 
an anarchist argument that is becoming popular and you see the right wing reaction to the fact that language around abolition of policing and abolition of other parts of the carceral state are gaining traction among, you know, kind of milquetoast liberal folk. Oh, no, for sure. You know, and so I think that that actually provides a really good way for people internationally to... I mean, in the UK, the police don't have guns, but should there be someone that the state says can beat the crap out of someone with a stick? Like, Yeah, you're right, but they don't have guns, which is also, though, amazing that they don't have is, guns. exactly. It's just like... And it's hardly ever mentioned, you know, that they don't. I've been reading the New York Review of Books for a long time. They're sort of Democrats all the way, but they consider themselves like, you know, AOC kind of Democrats or Sanders Democrats, those kind of people. Mm-hmm. And they have had articles for years about how, how rotten the prison system is in the States. Okay? Mm-hmm. But they're like the intellectuals, you know, and now I think it's moving even like closer to the, the mainstream Democrats. They were like the le- kind of lefty Democrats. Mm-hmm. If I can say it that way, you know, as I said, like, you know, the Sanders or the AOCs or whatever, you know, and they, and they had articles always on things like the condition of health in prisons. So I guess now they just want to, they're just going to move their fellow Democrats along. I mean, they won't disavow the Democratic Party, let's say. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. You know, and those people have their counterparts here as well. well here we call them social Democrats. Okay. And there you call them liberals. What do you think with all of this, like going back to the idea of speed and how Mm -hmm. like quickly, you know, information is flying around and and also just how quickly things are happening in our political culture. You know, in the U.S., we're reacting to some new out of control thing that has happened maybe twice a day at this point, it feels. And there's this really like frenzied media landscape. As someone who I feel like through your work and just through who you are in your history in in movements and as someone who's been you know into anarchy for a long time what lessons do you think there are in kind of like radical history in general and in theory and which writers would you point people to just to kind of become a little more grounded during these times before i answer that i just want to say that the violence toward women is a constant it hasn't fluctuated with anything i mean i hasn't really fluctuated when times are better, and it hasn't really fluctuated when, I mean, you know, I'm talking about, like, violence in a relationship, you know, either marriage or, you know, someone living with somebody or even people just, you know, seeing each other, okay? Mm -hmm. I think there are better and worse periods, no, better is not the right word, there are worse and even worse periods, rather than nothing gets, like, better, you know what I mean? I think when times are better and everything is more liberal, then maybe the violence toward women is just more subtle, but I think it's always there, and I think there's a, a horrible backlash that is continuous. I mean, I couldn't believe that even even at the Republican convention, this woman is saying that she's for the family vote, right? Which was where the, or the husband, and they would never think of not outside of you know people being married. Mm-hmm. The husband gets the final word on how the family is going to vote. I mean, I could wait a minute, where did, could this even come from? This idea, you know, but. I mean, for me, that's already a violence, but the reaction to any form of feminism, the fact that there are probably more women pediatricians now, let's say, or there at least are in Quebec than men, more women graduating uh, universities, more women, which we don't want, you know, being in the army and in the police, all that, I think it just creates even more violence toward women, but it never stopped. It never, it's something that's always overlooked, and violence toward women of color is probably even worse. 
know, mm-hmm. because they also have the whole racism of the general society on them as well. You know, I mean, I worked in a shelter. You know, women were torn. Do they want to press charges? You know, have their partners beaten up in jail? Yeah, I mean, I think that with all this, patriarchy should not be forgotten in, in all these movements. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's really important. I think it's the last sister state or the one before. Carol Hoffman had a very strong article. She's an author on violence toward women. It was really, really powerful. And her books are, are powerful as well. And so much pretty is where she's dealing with, you know, with violence toward women. So, and then, I, so I would recommend, and so leading on to your question, I would recommend Carl Hoffman's books. I would rec- think it's important to read Lola Lafon, We Are the Birds of the Coming Storm. I think to go back, I, I mean, for me, the whole question of gender is, for me, less important than the question of patriarchy, but that's, you know, for me and who I am, I'm not necessarily separating those questions, but, you know, I think they can they go together very well, gender and patriarchy, mm-hmm. and racism and patriarchy, but I think that patriarchy is, should never be overlooked, you know. It's the system that enforces gender in this sure rigid does. way, right? Yeah, and I think Caliban and the Witch, which is by Federici, you know, so okay, so I think that's really important. I think, you know, um, Caliban and the Witch, uh, Lola Fon, for, uh, it's a novel, We Are the Birds of the Coming Storm, a novel, Carol Hoffman, so much pretty. It books on the Mujeres Libres, who were the Spanish women anarchists, I think, you know, are um, pretty important. I, you know, I just read an incredible novel, 570 pages that I was at the end, trying not to read so fast, but it kept calling me, called S-U-O-S-S-O apostrophe S. So, Soso's Lane by Robert Knox. It's a historical novel about Sacco and Vanzetti. And if you don't know where we're coming from, then we're going to, as we say, it's K-N-O-X. It's really, really good, but it also has some contemporary. It's an excellent novel. Because it's not... I think, you know, at least I, if I'm reading fiction, I, literature, I don't want to be reading a track, you know, or propaganda or, some, you know, I mean, I want to be reading literature, or unless I'll take a history book. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, those are, are quite good. I just think it's really important for people to have those basics, you know, uh, No God, No Masters kind of books. There's Cindy Milstein, just put out a book called Deciding for Ourselves. Is edited by her. It just shows different collectives and different ways of how people organized in times of crisis. It's really good. You know, I think Against the Mega Machine by David Watson, I think is a basic. Freddie Perlman's Against History. Mm-hmm. Freddie Perlman, The Continuing Appeal of Nationalism, Anti-Semitism, and The Pogrom of Beirut. I think those three by Perlman are, like, essential. Just to really understand, you know, because nationalism can is really can be you can transpose that to, you know, to religion and to or to white supremacy, right? Because mm-hmm. all that, you know, I think those are kind of basic texts, fiction and nonfiction. So yeah, I think while it's important to understand what's happening now, it's also important to understand like how we got. You know, there's, there are books about fascism in the states and the origins of fascism in the states, and understanding fascism in Europe, you know, as well. I think is pretty important. What else? Beyond geography by Turner mm. is another good one I would recommend. And then, you know, I would recommend, like, Thomas King's books about Native people, you know, his novels, too. I mean, because you can get a lot from novels as well as by reading history, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, Courthouse. I mean, there are so many. God, there's so many incredibly, you know, good books. I mean, someone could start looking at all the books re- reviewed in the Fifth Estate, let's say. Okay. Uh, and then there's, you know, references from there. You know, there are enough references against the mega machine to keep, you know, to keep going, people going for a long time. That's a pretty good start. Yeah, and then you people get references from there. You know? But I think, yeah. you know, I think No God, No God, No Masters, or even just Anarchism by, you know, Guérin, you know, leads to other kind of writing, you know, and reading as well. Mm-hmm. And here's a second reading list. Five years old. Book people are the best people. I'd also start with a, a pamphlet called um, Communicating Vessels. Let's well, have a small new zine called Communicating mm-hmm. Vessels. Um, the Oyster Catcher from Denman Island. Um, I would think that uh, Daniel Guérin, No God, No Masters, you know, it goes historically, would be a, or his anarchism is a good one. Um, if anybody is you know, interested in fiction, there's Kara Hoffman. Was, it's not directly anarchist, but it's very feminist, and uh, I think that's pretty important. Um, George Woodcock wrote a book on anarchism as well. His stuff is interesting. Uh, there's also a very interesting historical book uh, called Caliban and the Witch. But I just cannot remember um, the author's name, but I'll try to think of it. Actually, I would read also... Thanks to Peter and Sandy and all of those involved in the collectives of these three wonderful anarchist institutions. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoy the show, you should subscribe, and it would be lovely for you to also share it with a friend. As I said, the show notes below have Sandy's entire reading list, links to the projects we discussed, and a few bonus resources. You can also ask questions, get in touch with me, support this project, and more at praxisradio.com. That's P-R-A-X-I-S-R-A-D-I-O.com. You might have noticed episodes are getting longer each week against my best efforts. There were wonderful moments in both of these conversations I couldn't include, and in other past episodes, too. At the end of the season, I'm planning to share bonus versions with full-length interviews if you just can't get enough. Next week, on the eve of Election Day here in the U.S., we'll head to New York City for a little escape from all of that and into the transformative power of imagination, art, and artists in social movements. Hang in there.